Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Earlier this year, I received an email from a podcast listener, Mike McClure, who described himself to me as a farrier for elephants, which after some inquiring, I realized he is so much more than that and actually a consultant for all things elephant as well as for other exotics. But anyway, he asked me if we could chat and that night we connected over the phone talking about laminitis type issues in elephants and ways that it may or may not be similar to horses. This conversation alone intrigued me enough to ask him if he'd be willing to be on the podcast and talk about similarities and differences between elephant feet and horse hooves. One thing that really fascinated me is the approach Mike takes in assessing movement, reading wear patterns on their feet, assessing conformation, weight bearing, and limb loading, and really looking at the whole elephant before ever looking at its feet. I learned so much from this conversation with him and still feel like I could learn so much more from Mike about how to apply some of these elephant trimming ideals to how we assess horses. I don't even know if I, I mentioned this to you. I must have the first time we talked on the phone, but I've always been like a little obsessed with elephants. I mean, I've actually never, I mean, I guess I've seen them at the zoo, so I really like them, but I know zero things about them. I am fascinated in in probably the reverse way as you are with horses. I just, I find them these mystical, hard to comprehend things, and they seem so unique to me. And I think that really I see a big connection between people and and elephants and large mammals. There's something about them that we all connect with. So that's not at all surprising. Yeah. I know you had mentioned yesterday that maybe we can talk about how we got connected, which from... This is so bad because I'm trying to remember exactly what happened first. But you did you email me first? I did. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you had already been listening to the podcast, which like what brought you to listen to a hoof care podcast for horses? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have been sort of chasing a lot of issues in elephant feet for a long time. I've been working directly with elephants for 20 plus years now. And I had uh, an elephant that was really a life changer for me. She's really the most magnificent creature I've ever been around. And I mean, that includes humans too, you know, and I've got some wonderful humans in my life, but I just learned so much from her. And at the end of her life, I ran into a foot issue and it stopped me in my tracks. You know, I really thought I knew what I was doing. I was young. I, I thought I had lots of experience and I really had nothing. And this foot issue with her, which turned out to be a pad lesion, it just rippled out into other things, you know, and and I started seeing all these other limb failures and and other issues related to it. And I I just felt like I was losing the fight. And that went on for for three years. And ultimately, I think that, you know, this this foot condition with her contributed greatly to her ultimate demise uh, when we had to, to euthanize her. And I, you know... I'm kind of a nerd. I don't, I like to know everything I can possibly know about anything. And I felt very defeated. And I started, you know, doing more research and and trying to find out more about what could have caused this with her. And more importantly, what I could have done differently. And believe me, man, I did a ton. You know, we, we have the Ravens here in Baltimore. And I actually contacted the Ravens team and had their physical therapist come out at one point, you know, and, and work through 
exercises with me and her to see what I could do differently to try and help her. I did have a colleague that is perhaps one of the best elephant vets and large animal vets in the world, Dr. Ellen Weedner. She put me in touch with someone at New Bolton, and I may be wrong, but I think it was Dr. Van Epps, honestly. Oh, wow. um, and we had, yeah, and this is this is a long time ago, but so I, I started looking for different things, you know, after she was gone. And foot care in elephants has a long history, but a very checkered history. And I couldn't get any two people to tell me the same thing, you know, and, and I, I just wasn't finding the right information that let me, you know, have some light bulb moments and some ahas and figure things out. And I always look for analogs, you know, so... I think horses are the nearest comparison in terms of foot care that people had come up with for elephants. And I started looking at, you know, hooves and the anatomy of the hoof and how horses bear weight. And I found a lot of similarities and an equal amount of differences. So part of what I started doing is I've got a, you know, I've got a 45 minute drive back and forth to work every day and I'm a podcast addict. So I started looking for equine podcasts. And I'm sure you know, there are about 6.5 million of them, yeah. you know, depending on which what you want to listen to. And I tried to focus on hooves and hoof anatomy and yours, you know, I, I listened to, I think one of your first ones where you talked about your own horse, where you had very specific issues that sort of led you to take kind of the same information search that I did with Dolly, you know, to learn more. And it sounded like it was really the impetus for you to take a deep dive into these amazing anatomical structures. And it connected with me, you know, it really resonated. And so I listened more. And as I've told you, but I will repeat because it's, I think it's important, your podcast and your approach is incredible. You know, you you seek out differing opinions and different people and you even, you know, freely and openly admit that you don't necessarily agree on some things, but that it, it they're important perspectives to share. And I think that's where we find commonalities and, and true knowledge and, and real insights, you know, when we support sort of that divergent view on things that ultimately helps us get to points where we can start to converge on our thinking. So I was really impressed with everything you you were putting out there and all of the people you spoke to. And at the end of every podcast, you know, you you say, hey, you know, if you want to talk more, email me, find me on Facebook, you know, you leave yourself wide open for that. And I was like, heck, yeah, I'm going to contact this lady. Um, and I, I shot you an email one morning when I parked at the zoo, you know, and I was list, had just listened to a podcast and was very energized. And you answered me within like four hours. And I think we had a phone call that night on my way home from the zoo and just talked about some of these things. And that's, that's how I came to find you in particular, but your podcast. And I will just say through your podcast, I have found tons of, of articles to read and people to look up and a lot more information that has been and this is a good thing, so hear me out. It's It's been confusing. Um, you know, it's it's really sort of made me look at everything and, and scratch my head and sort of think, man, I'm not on the right track. Or on some things, maybe I need to look at, you know, certain aspects closer. And I think the stuff that's been the most revelatory to me has been the stuff on uh, laminitis and treatments and just ultimately underlying causes. So that's 
that's how I came to find your podcast. Long, long answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. And honestly, as you were talking about like being confused, I think the more that I talk to people, the more confused I get too. But it just kind of spurs me on to want to know more because, you know, like you were saying, when you have an animal or I mean, even a person in our life that's hurting and we want to help them, it's sort of, it, it makes you want to just like put all ego aside. You know, you don't really care if the person is somebody that you disagree with or not. Like I want to hear as much as I can so I can try to figure out where all these different perspectives are coming from and why there's so much conflicting information and what's actually helping and what's not. Uh, But it often leaves me with a lot more questions than answers. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's definitely been a really, a really fun journey. Which then like makes me want to know, obviously, like we kind of skipped a whole thing of like, how did you even get into working with elephants? Like, how did you get into their foot care in the first place or (laughs) get into, you know, working at a zoo? Yeah, that's a great question. I grew up in South Carolina and my mom was a Georgia farm girl and she encouraged me to get out in the world and just explore. And she was amazing. She instilled a sense of wonder in me that's just it's still strong to this day. And I would bring home, you know, baby animals that I would find. I would bring home injured animals that were hit on the side of the road, you know. And and mom always was like, this is life, you know, and and you have to respect that life and and do everything you can to help take care of it. So she really fostered this in me. And I ended up working at a local zoo, which was more like a a state park that had some, some really cool species in it. I mean, they were all native to South Carolina at one point or another. So I got to work with a lot of different things, alligators, elk, bison, black bears, um, rattlesnakes, you name it. And when I graduated from college here, I had a biology degree with emphasis on animal behavior. And I thought I wanted to be a primatologist and started putting out applications, moved to Baltimore, got a job working with primates within... I would say probably a couple of years, I decided that was not for me. They are too much like us, too mm-hmm. sneaky, too strong, and creep me out a little bit over time. Um, but I do love the chimps, and I do love the monkeys still, and I still work with them. And to be quite honest, uh, to explain how I got into elephants and ultimately foot care, I was a young kid, and I was really good with reading behavior and interpreting behavior and putting the right cues out for animals to be able to respond well to me. And as a young kid with no real, you know, perspective, I was pretty good at what I did. And I was a jerk. I had lots of ego and as as you do when you're lacking maturity. And the elephant team needed somebody to come and work with them. And they were the king jerks of the zoo. And they were like, well, well, let's get this guy. He'll fit right in with us. Um, so I moved over there, but not, not because I liked the guys in particular. It was more because I was pretty fascinated by the animals and I had learned all I could from, at least all I thought I could from the primates at that point. And as soon as I got in the barn and, you know, got to be around these, these elephants, I was just humbled and blown away. And I listened to everything they taught me, but I really tuned in pretty quickly to the fact that they were not really seeing these animals for what they really were. And when I first started, there were a lot of foot issues. These elephants had cracks in the nail face uh, that were, they, to me, they looked horribly painful. You know, and the elephants are really stoic animals. They don't show it. You know, they just don't show any discomfort until it's really severe. And I was asking these guys, I was like, what's with that crack? You know, how do you, how do you take care of something like that? What do you do? 
and they would just always say, oh, yeah, she's always had that. That's just, it's fine. You, you, we'll just rasp on it in a couple of weeks and we'll take a little little bit of the nail off and she'll be okay. And I was like, that's not an answer. You know, that, that's not telling me what to do or where it's coming from. And the fact that she's always had it, to me, doesn't mean that she should always have to have it, you know? But back then, elephant management was very different and it was more based on the ego of the people working them. And some programs were fantastic some were not so great and I, I got into a not so great one so as things went on i started looking into things like operant conditioning you know and, and using positive reinforcement with these animals and, and animal training and behavior and, and how to steer these things properly and use sort of what i had as a built-in talent and background from my mom to apply some science you know and really change how these animals were were being managed and they responded really well and over time, I got pretty good at it. And the guy started leaving me alone and stopped harassing me and treating me as the new guy. And I just took on foot care. And that's when I made my worst mistakes ever. Uh, I started running around talking to everybody I could. But the problem with the elephant industry is that there aren't many elephants around. You know, I live in Maryland. I can drive five minutes in any direction and see six or seven horse farms. But if you want to see another elephant program, I've got to go. 45 minutes up the road to National Zoo or drive to uh, Pittsburgh. So there's just not a, a lot of readily available resources in terms of people, and there's certainly not a lot of books. So I, I did travel around. I talked to a lot of people, and I, I paid close attention to feet because I wanted to fix those nail cracks. And I learned a lot, and I have learned now that a lot of what I learned was incorrect. But, it, I mean, that's kind of the nature of it, right? Like we, we try and do our best, and then we're like, crap we can do better than that so that's that's sort of how i ended up in elephant management but then also focusing on elephant feet and the one elephant whose name is dolly she was the one that really converted me to to be addicted to these animals and and to want to know everything about them and she's the one that had the foot issue ultimately so here i am years and years later listening to horse hoof podcasts and you know reading everything i could possibly get a hold of to try and learn more yeah, and I was just thinking how hard it must be because with horses, you know, we have people that are working them, they're riding them all the time, and they're so focused on their feet, and their people are constantly looking for ways to improve their soundness and the quality of their feet. I feel like it's it's not an uncommon discussion. And is that even something that is a big discussion in the elephant world? I mean, are there even are there a lot of teachers? I mean, you're a teacher, like you go around and teach how to mm -hmm. to trim feet so is that you know a a very rare thing or is it becoming more prevalent yeah that's that's interesting um it's pretty rare what i will say though is as long as elephants have been managed in human care and that's you know that's for thousands of years i mean they've been working with humans and alongside humans, you know, in, in Asia and Africa forever. I think there's always been a sense that the feet are probably one of the most important things to take care of. And some of that is just because, you know, there is that horse industry and that horse profession that, you know, focuses so much on feet and that just translates over to elephants. You know, it's another, essentially a four-legged working animal. You know, you got to take care of the feet if you're going to take care of the animal. And as long as I've been in zoos and, and long before I got into them, actually, people have known that the feet needed a focus. And there have been some hit or miss attempts to, you know, formally address foot care. 
and there was a great conference years ago back in i think it was late 1990s where a lot of elephant care professionals got together and talked about feet and, and wrote some articles and put it together in a, a compilation and published it and it's really the only time anybody's put anything together like that and it was a fantastic publication at the time because because it brought different perspectives to the table to discuss. But looking back on it now, people sort of treat it because it's the only thing out there as, as kind of the Bible. And I'll be honest, I read some of the stuff in it and I, I just cringe. You know, it's it's out of date and it's all anybody has. So that's what they refer to. So I think that, again, we've always known that feet needed attention, but there aren't many people who have taken it to the lengths that it needs to go. And I, I am the first to admit, I know nothing about feet. I would like to think I know a little bit, but man, uh, just the more I learn, the more confused I get. But I do sort of try to find information and share that and, and give people insights so that we can work together to come up with ideas. And I do teach for our, for zoos, there's a uh, professional affiliation, an association called the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, the AZA. And AZA puts together professional development courses for zookeepers, which are great. And there's one that focuses strictly on elephants. I mean, elephants have their own class, you know, which is pretty incredible. It tells you how unique they are. And I am the course, one of the course administrators and an instructor for it. And when the foot care section came open because an instructor left the class, everybody was like, not it. You know, it was like the hot potato. And I love feet. And I was like, I'll do it. You know, and, and I started sharing some of these ideas and some of this information that I had found. And it was amazing to me how quickly it clicked with the students who were coming to the class. And I started getting calls and, and my God, my phone just blows up regularly with photos from people, you know, text messages. And it's like, hey, I've got this thing. And what do you think? You know, and, and it, it really sort of put me in a place where I was trying to help a lot of different people. So now I'm starting to try and help everybody that has a foot care issue, which is quite a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, imagine, you know, you know what goes on in the horse world. It's pretty much the same with elephants. And there's really only a couple people who also try to do this. And there's another guy who's, he's a great guy and he's done a, God, the amount of work he's done in elephants is just incredible. But, you know, I, I do disagree with some of the approaches that he takes and that's fine. You know, we have differing opinions. But he's really spectacular at, at specific aspects of foot care that I, I would like to learn. Something that I hope comes across in most of these podcast episodes is the fact that hoof care with horses is so much more than looking at just the feet. There are so many variables at play when we are trying to figure out distortion or pathology in hooves. And the more I talked to Mike about the elephant foot world, the more I realized that he sees a lot of the same things in elephants. I take a very different approach to foot care than I think most people do. I don't just look at the foot. I look at the entire animal. I, I've stolen a phrase from your podcasts. Um, I forget who. Um, it might be Pete Ramey, I think, that, that you said says it. But I think that feed on elephants are canaries in the coal mine, you know, just like you guys talk about horses. And I think that if you look at the a foot issue then you got to step back and say, what's going on with her conformation? What's going on with her weight bearing? What's going on with her gait, her stride? What's happening physiologically with her? You know, how old is she? How is she? I have to 
remember to use horse terms. Um, <laughs> how was she stalled, you know, when she was younger? All that sort of stuff. And so I, I come at it from a very holistic standpoint. And I think people people appreciate that, you know, because when they send me these pictures, they're like, oh, my cuticles on this nail are a little gross and we trim on them. And I kind of, I shudder inside, you know, and, and I'm like, hey, can you send me a picture of how she stands? You know, and, and then we take a look at that and I'm like, look at her. She's, she's really towing out on that foot and her back left hip looks like it has discomfort to me. And because of that, she's contralaterally buffering all of her weight to the front right, you know? And, and so then people are like, oh my God, I never really looked at that. And I'll ask, how long has she been that way? And then I hear my favorite phrase, right? It's always been like that, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm like, well, you are now seeing the results of an elephant that has done this their whole life. And because there weren't any obvious problems, now, you, you know, you've kind of missed that you need to help and give her some proactive foot care in the front right, as an example, to to help her be more sound, more stable and balance that add that tremendous weight more effectively. And as they age, right, all of our tissues become less resilient. You, you lose a lot of that remarkable plasticity that these tissues have and you're starting to see the effects. You know, so now you're having serious pathologies develop in your animal. And suddenly it's like, oh, my God, I thought we were doing foot care so great and everything's kind of falling apart now. What do I do? What do I do? So, again, that's that's my overall approach. I, I wish there were more people out there doing it because I think it's a lot for me to get to everybody, you know, and but I am finding some remarkable people in our industry that are like blank slates and they want to know more. And they're, they're taking these ideas and adding to them, you know, and, and expanding what I'm seeing in elephant feed. So. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. There's not a lot, not a big body of reference out there and not a lot of people doing it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hearing a ton of similarities, like you had mentioned between, you know, things that I look for in horses and what you're looking for in elephants. And I openly admit, like, I really don't know anything about their foot anatomy. So can you just kind of, I know this is going to probably be like super basic, but can you just explain like, you know, what's an elephant's foot like? <laughs> Yeah, it's like nothing else. It's really interesting. I could spend hours just talking about elephants in general, you know, just with all their unique adaptations. But when I start talking about or feet, see, I'm already calling them hooves, talking to, to an equine specialist. <laughs> when I start talking about feet with elephants, you know, I, I always tell people, I think elephants, it's very easy to ignore the feet. You know, we all love elephants. We marvel at their uniqueness. But when you look at an elephant, what do you see first? And, and you're like, wow, what's that weird snaky thing hanging off their face? That trunk is cool, you know, and, and it's bizarre. And it is truly the most adapted appendage in all of nature. Science has not found anything that's as, as adapted as an elephant's trunk and the ears, right? So you look at those things and everybody's like, wow, so your attention's already up high, you know, and the feet just look like clunky, big balloon feet, you know, so everybody disregards them. But when you start to really look at what seems to affect elephants the most, I mean, you can cut off a half of an elephant's trunk. You know, it happens to them in Africa and snares all the time. And they still function. You know, they still survive and thrive. They thermoregulate through their ears. I mean, all the blood in the body passes through the ears every 20 minutes. You know, that's like a 100 gallons of blood. And that's how they cool. You know, they don't have sweat glands except for between the toes and the feet which is, again, weird. <laughs> so the ears are pretty important to, you know, maintaining life. And you can, they can lose half of an ear, you know, to an injury or, or something like that. 
and they still function they still thrive but on an elephant man you lose a foot you lose an elephant you know they just they can't survive and so when you kind of look at that anatomy and again using analogs like us cattle horses there are some similarities and some really stark differences so an elephant's foot is the the best way that i always try to tell people to envision the function of an elephant's foot is think about having a water balloon you know and, and that's full and holding it up by where you've tied the knot and then gently letting it down on a table and then lifting it up all right so an elephant's foot is is evolved to expand and contract up to 20 percent of its size as it loads weight and then offloads weight inside the foot is this really remarkable interdigital cushion. You guys have those in horses, of course, which mm -hmm. they're fascinating to me, but it's really easy for people to go, well, it's the same thing as a horse. It, it, it's at the bottom of the limb and it absorbs impact and force and disperses pressure, right? Well, actually research tells us the interdigital cushion in an elephant is more like the structures that you find in the foot of a cow and actually more like the heel structure in a human. But in a horse, and if I understand this right, this is where your expertise comes in, why I'm fascinated with everything you all do. In a horse, that interdigital cushion doesn't bear as much weight as it would in an elephant because horses have this amazing apparatus for, you know, suspending the leg and it's connected to the hoof and it, it disperses that weight up that suspensory apparatus, if I'm, if I'm correct. Elephants don't have that any of that suspensory apparatus. They don't have that anatomy. Yeah. So the interdigital cushion is really where all of that weight needs to go and all that force and all of that pressure. And that foot has to expand and contract properly. It has to be able to absorb those upward forces from the substrates that they encounter during locomotion and disperse them properly or else you get some really bad redirection of that energy into the limbs, you know, the joints, um, the surrounding tissues of the foot. The nails on an elephant's foot, a lot of people historically treated them like horses' hooves. You know, they were, they were trimmed and managed the same way. And the thought process was that these were just like five little hooves embedded in this, this squishy weird foot. And they're not. The nails on an elephant are actually more like your toenails, your fingernails. So anatomically and functionally, they are meant to be more like protective shields for the toes. They also serve the same function as like the nails in our fingertips, where those are actually kind of like um, engineering struts. They're designed to help increase the amount of pressure and, and support the fingertips so that we can lift and grasp and, and do all of those really difficult tasks that put a lot of energy into the fingertips. So that they're the same in elephants. So most importantly, the thing that, that should be derived from that is that, you know, the opposite of a horse, the, the nail structures on an elephant should not ever be weight bearing. So that becomes a pretty complicated issue for elephants. And that's one of the biggest things that I'm always talking to people about because Elephant nails grow anywhere from five to seven millimeters a month, roughly. A little bit faster in Asians, a little slower in African elephants. But they can overgrow, and if you don't trim them or shape them right, now you've got a fingernail or a toenail that's getting a lot of focused pressure, and the nail is not made for that, but the nail is really dense tissue, right? It, it is like a, a the hoof wall on a horse, but it's not made to handle those pressures like a horse's hoof is. 
And what happens is the nail sort of sends that pressure into the surrounding tissue, the, the pad tissue, the epithelial tissue around the toenail face. And those tissues are soft tissues. I always tell people, you know, just think about your nails like they're rocks and think of the elephant's foot as a big giant wad of, of bread dough. You know, so you've got these rocks that are in embedded in this bread dough. And if those rocks are moving, right, they're more dense. The bread dough is where you're going to get the flex. And those tissues, those epithelial tissues, the pad tissue on the bottom of the foot, just the skin, the cuticle, it can't take those pressures and you get major breakdown. But you also get inflammation behind the nail. And that's that's really where I'm most interested in the analogs between horses and, and elephants, because elephants have a pretty similar structure to a, a lot of your hoof anatomy behind that nail. So. They have the two layers of lamina. They've got the sensitive and insensitive epidermal dermal lamina. They've got a corium back there right behind it. And, you know, your, your lamina are like your Velcro holding your nail in place and connecting it to P3 or P2. Um, elephants are weird. They, they don't have three phalanges on every toe. They, it depends on the toe. But they do have five toes on every single foot. doesn't matter if it's a hind or a, or a front foot. But they are, again, elephants are like aliens. They're bizarre. Um, not every foot has five nails. And it can differ from elephant to elephant. And on a single elephant, it can even differ from foot to foot. You know, you can have four nails on the front right and five nails on the front left. So they're, they're weird animals. But the toes are always there. So the bone structure is, you know, usually you look at in, in the center toes, the forward facing toes, you look at P1, 2, and 3 on radiograph, and those are mostly present. P3 is missing on the lateral and medial toes usually. But yeah, so, geez, I could go on, I'm sorry. No, um, there's, there's just a ton of really interesting anatomy and, and stuff going on. And a huge difference, it's really important to note, your horse's feet, I am super jealous of horse foot circulation. So horses have a lot of vascular tissue, um, a lot of veins, arteries, capillaries in those feet. And I think that's amazing because elephants don't. The feet are poorly vascularized. And as a result, wound healing in those feet is, is almost like trying to heal wounds in, in diabetic patients. You know, there's just not a lot of good perfusion in, in those feet. And they actually need to pump that foot and through locomotion, you know, to help the, the blood get to the tissues it needs to get to and, and circulate back to the heart. So when you get a pretty bad wound or what we call a laminitis in an elephant toe or, you know, a pad lesion, it makes it really challenging to get that foot to, to heal and to heal properly. And then I think the other thing that's probably would, would probably be interesting for you is if you look at the skeletal anatomy of the limbs of the elephants, they're very different from horses. And it's almost like with an elephant, you have a person that's doing kind of a bear crawl. So the front limbs of an elephant are very much like our arms and our wrists and our fingers, whereas the rear limbs are almost exactly like our legs. People don't really connect it until it's pointed out to them. But next time you see an elephant, Look at the rear leg. Most, well, actually all quadrupeds, except for elephants, have that hock, you know, at, at the back leg. And elephants have a straight column-like leg. They don't have that hock, which one interesting thing is it makes them completely physically unable to jump. 
Wow. They don't have that ability, which is so relieving for me because seeing an 8,000-pound animal or 12,000-pound animal jump would be terrifying. Yeah. And I can't think of the fence that you would be able to build to keep them in. Right. But it, it, that, that anatomical evolutionary adaptation seems to be because, you know, for a couple of things, but it seems to be because, one, they're huge. You know, there's a lot of weight on those feet and on those limbs. You know, a female elephant can get up to eight or 9,000 pounds, depending on the species. A male elephant, which yet another question about elephants, male elephants never stop growing. They just get bigger as long as they're living, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. But a male elephant could potentially get up to, you know, 12, 14, 16,000 pounds. Unfortunately, we don't see any that big anymore in the range countries because of things like poaching. But, you know, they can get that big. And when you're that large, you definitely have to have a better anatomical device to hold weight. But also, and this isn't proven, this is just one of my own theories, but, you know, when you have such really, really drastic sexual dimorphism between an elephant male and an elephant female, you've got to think about breeding, you know, and that that female may be 6,000 pounds when she's mature, and the dominant bull in the area may be 12,000 pounds, you know, so he's twice her body mass. And they bear 60% of their weight in their front end. So he's got to cover her and she's got to be able to withstand that weight, you know? And if you had that, that hawk and that male was that large, that, that would require a lot of intense muscle action just to hold that weight for the duration of breeding. And these females are able to lock those knees. They have, you know, locking ligaments and tendons that allow them just to go into this really nice quadrupedal stance and they can bear a lot of weight. So there's little to no angulation in the leg bones, which is fascinating when you think about load bearing and gait and locomotion. And then the other, another really cool thing about that skeletal anatomy in an elephant is the long bones have zero marrow. They just, they don't have it. And that seems to be another adaptation to create strength in those limbs. And like I was saying to you earlier, though, I still think there's more to understand there, you know, and I have more questions than I have answers about why those limbs are straight like that, because giraffes, rhinos, you know, they're not small animals and they have similar difficulties, you know, from a, a functional uh, life strategy standpoint. And yet they have the, the hock in the rear legs. One other quick thing about that is there was a really cool study um, using elephants in human care to look at how these animals use those legs. And the, the basic conclusion was that all quadrupeds they apply different functions to different legs. So the front legs, and this would of course apply to horses, are used for steering and braking and, and locomotion. The rear legs are primarily your propulsion, right? Yeah. In an elephant, when they looked at these, these column-like legs and looked at how they distribute those functions using treadmills and motion capture and all these really, really cool things um, that are way over my head, they determined that elephants handle steering, braking and propulsion equally across all four limbs and essentially these these things are nature's four-wheel drive jeep you know so they if you take that to its next logical conclusion elephants are putting some amazing forces on these feet you know and on these limbs and and they're doing it different than anything else with four legs out there so that's quick overview of anatomy and function. Um, and we could probably talk about that for a whole nother podcast, but that, that's the basic gist. 
So at this point in our conversation, I was starting to have a million questions swirling around in my brain, but in order to get to the connections I wanted to make about horses and their movement and biomechanics, I needed to understand the basic approach to trimming elephant feet. Was it just focusing on these nails or did Mike address the bottom of the foot too? You'll notice within seconds of me asking how he addresses foot care, he mentions assessing conformation and weight bearing, which is something I'm constantly trying to pick apart in regards to horses. I think we can learn so much from the observations Mike has with elephants and how it might relate to our work with horses. At another section, you'll hear Mike talk about how careful you have to be not to over-trim elephant feet, as you could be removing something they need, and I think all of us have seen similar when it comes to trimming horses, especially their soles. At some points, I felt like I could take Mike's words and remove the word elephant and replace it with horse and feel like the sentiments would fit really pretty well. And now I feel like I have like a million questions. So I'm going to try to um, hone in on a few of them. So as someone who's obviously like never even really examined an elephant foot, it sounds like they can have, you know, just as much pathology as a horse's hoof. And if I'm getting that sort of idea of like some of the things you were mentioning. So I guess this is going to be a two part question. When you're approaching an elephant for like maintenance foot care, what might that look like as opposed to approaching an elephant that might have some pathology in their foot? Is it mostly revolving around the nail or are you doing stuff um, with the pad of the foot? And do you have to like pick up these elephants feet or, you know, how are you addressing (laughs) their feet? (laughs) Yeah. The, the basic foot care. Uh, what I am a proponent of is don't don't touch a foot until you do a full assessment of confirmation and weight bearing. So you have to first fully understand what your elephant's normal standing and walking patterns are, because that's where the elephant is showing you how they are going to put pressure on the tissues of the foot. Okay. So once you have an understanding of that and, and, my God, the the presentation of elephant conformation is just endlessly varied. You can have animals with uh, slightly valgus, um, turned out carpus, and a straight foot. You can have them slightly bent at the shoulder. You can have an entire limb rotated outward. So you have to look at all of those things. And what's, what's equally important is you have to know and understand how these animals should stand if they were perfect in a utopian world, if they had perfect conformation and perfect weight bearing and were healthy young animals. And an elephant, again, toes, your well, your nails should not be weight bearing, okay? A toe though, is where some pressure can be centralized on the bottom of the foot where there's that remarkable pad. And the pad I haven't really talked about, but the pad is like a leathery covering on the bottom. It's very keratinized. It's very, it can be very thick. It can be thin in some animals too. But the pad itself should have corrugations, sulci, or what have traditionally in elephant management been called cracks. But I try to move away from using cracks as the term because cracks from a human standpoint implies something broken or a defect. And then people People tend to focus on the crack and try to manage a crack when really you should manage the whole foot. So these these corrugations in the foot are essentially the elephant's adaptation to increase the surface area of the pad. 
So the more surface area you have down there, and that doesn't mean you need giant corrugations and tons of, of these, these grooves, um, there's a balance. But it does increase the surface area, which then when the foot loads 4,000 pounds on it, and it's trying to expand to 20% of its size to hold that weight and channel all of that force into the digital cushion, those corrugations expand and help that foot spread out evenly. So you have to manage, you have to trim pad in normal maintenance. And once you've sort of figured out how that pad should function, how those toes should disperse weight and where, and elephants are weird, man, the, the front feet are different than the back feet. Most of the weight, they, they load laterally to medially. When they take a step, most of the weight is initially loaded on the lateral side of the foot, both front and backs, and then it rolls medially until they toe off. So the toes on both fronts and rears, the D3 digit, which is the third digit, the center digit, is the one that will naturally accept the most pressure. And then on the fronts, it's the outer, uh, next outer digit, the D4. And on the backs, it's the first, second inner digit, the D2. So you have to understand where these pressures go, what the function of the foot is, and once you know that, plus the conformation of your elephant, you do, you, you have to get their feet up. So you have to train them to present sort of a, a palmer view in the front and a rear foot presentation where they just lift the foot straight back. And then we use stools or props or fire hose, drapes, things like that to get them to rest the foot. And, and then you, you work on trimming them. I laughed a little bit because I really like the way people take care of horses hooves and I am a, personally I do a much better job and I'm a lot faster if I can brace the elephant's foot on my leg but we work elephants in protected contact a, a form where they're in on the other side of a barrier so it's not always easy to get an elephant to put its foot far enough out for you to do that but I also just as a side note I shattered this is also where I got some of my information I shattered my left foot a couple of years back and turned three of my metatarsals into cookie crumbs and the surgeon that fixed me up taught me a lot about feet it's where i made some more jumps in my knowledge but if he ever hears this podcast and hears that i'm putting an eight thousand pound animal's foot on my knee above that that foot that he rebuilt and is so proud of he'd kill me <laughs> um but yeah so you you need to get the foot up um, you do need to hold it to some degree, but a well-trained elephant will give you access from multiple presentations. And for the pads to be trimmed, you look at your tissue, you read your color, you see where the pad is getting more friction or less friction, and then you have to develop a strategy that trims that pad to either thicken or thin tissue to do two things, to help that one individual foot bear weight and the forces it's getting better so that your, your limbs are more cushioned and that weight is dispersed more into the digital cushion than towards the toes. But you also want to manage that foot according to the other three limbs that are, that are also doing the same functions. Um, so, you know, trimming an elephant's pad, I, I have to admit, I, I watch a lot of videos of people doing it online because we're, you know, again, we're a tight-knit community and everybody shares what they're doing to some degree. But you see people you know, taking a, a knife to these, these elephants' feet and just shaving it off like it's a chunk of wood that they're trying to carve, you know, rapidly just carving furrows. And, and it makes me cringe, you know, that I, I always tell people when you're doing 
when you're doing foot care, right? Nothing you take off of that foot can be put back on. Yeah. You know, like you've just got to wait for the, the next cycle for it to either grow back or you could take something off that never grows back. Remember how I talked about how poorly vascularized these feet are? You cut the wrong thing and you may completely permanently remove its its blood supply, you know, and, and you've got to be careful about that stuff. So I, I always advocate, take your time. I can trim a foot pretty damn fast, but I've been doing it for a long time and I, I'm adjusting with every single rasp stroke or knife cut and it has to be strategic. And once you do your foot, your, your foot pad, you also have to do your nails. You should never do one without the other because if you shorten your pad, you have then by nature elongated the nails, right? Like you've made them longer because you haven't taken tissue off. So you have to make sure that you shorten all of your nails. There has to be appropriate rounding of those surfaces. And I'm really making this super simple, but it's way more complex. Um, You have to make sure that your nail shapes are right. They have to be trimmed and shaped according to how that animal stands, because I'm sure this is the exact same in hooves, but nail tissue, pad tissue, to me, it's fluid. You know, it moves and flows with time away from force. So you get these, you know, event lines in the face of nails, you get these, these really obvious cuticle changes. And an, an elephant's cuticles are just like yours, you know, on your nails. So if you see drying or cracking or splits or feathering or separations in your cuticles, Unfortunately, I think a lot of elephant programs historically have just been sort of like, well, she's got bad cuticles. We just put some lotion on it or we cut on, you know, that's telling you there's an underlying problem there. And remember the what I said about rocks and bread, dough, right? These nails then are moving somehow and the nails are moving in a way that is dispersing force up into those soft cuticles and causing that abnormal growth. And people don't connect those things, you know, so you need to trim your nails to fix your cuticles. And instead, we're humans, right? We attack what we see. So we see this problem, we go at it, we carve on it, or we put topicals on it or whatever, rather than stepping back and going, what is the overall issue and reading the tissue to see where's this coming from. So that's basic, (laughs) basic, right? That is a basic strategy for trimming a foot you know you you have to train the elephant you have to read the tissue you have to understand confirmation and weight bearing and then you have to trim with a, a a carefully thought out strategy i'm sure that probably gives you six or seven more questions yeah well it's funny because these are like topics that i think about all the time when it comes to horses feet in terms of like how they're landing how they're loading how mm-hmm. what i'm taking away is going to influence their movement or their comfort or you know i and i tend to sometimes think that I, I overthink it because I don't know if this is true with elephants, but not every horse's hoof responds the same way. Even if you have the like exact same kind of movement and confirmation, I can do something that worked for one horse. And then the next horse I go to, it doesn't respond that same way that the last horse did. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's something that I'm always, you know, trying to get better at and trying to learn more about. And I feel like I'm nowhere near, where I need to be. And that's funny because, you know, you're saying like this is more of a maintenance, like this is what you do at, you know, when you come to an elephant. But in that's what I think too, when I come to horses, there's, you know, even maintenance, there's so much we're thinking about. And then when you add 
pathology into that. It's like, there's so much, you know, (laughs) there's just so much to know. And I know you had mentioned that there's something similar to laminitis with elephants and, you know, you have those pad lesions that I've heard you talk about. I've heard you talk about before, maybe not even today, but the last time we talked on the phone about um, like thin pads, you can have like foot Mm -hmm. sore elephants. You were talking about that. Um, Yeah. So I don't know if you want to touch on some of those things, because I think there's a lot of parallels there with horses, too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, And that's again, that's what brought me to to you. The thin pads, that was a, a conversation we did have. And I think what happens with some of these elephants is some animals, like you just said, are predisposed to certain anatomical conditions. You know, some animals just have soft feet, you know, or pads that don't grow as quickly as others. And there are some animals that their pads overgrow. So you've got you've to approach it carefully based on that. And ultimately, your pad wall on an elephant is really thin. You know, you can, you can make some... If you make some inappropriate deep cuts, you are into the internal anatomy of that animal fast. And at that point, remember I said those feet expand and contract, you know, up to 20% of their size. You are trimming on them when there's no weight on it. So imagine thinning that protective covering and then letting the elephant put its foot down. And now there's, you know, 3,000 pounds on that foot and it's expanded 20% more than what you left it if you cut it too thin. So you can get some pretty serious injuries there. But yeah, so thin pads is something I see a lot and you can get that behaviorally from an elephant too. You know, there are elephants that will engage in pattern-based behaviors. And this goes back sometimes to how they were stalled when they were younger. They didn't have as much room as they might've needed to move, you know, overnight say. And they might engage in uh, limited movement in a single space where they're actually pumping those feet and actually moving their their abdomen. Because elephants are, again, they're weird and stranger than everything else. They they don't move food through their digestive system unless they are physically moving their body. Um, It'll just sit otherwise. They're kind of like rabbits that way. So you get those pattern-based behaviors from elephants and they can wear their pads down depending on what kind of substrate they're on. You know, if they're on like a a really rough substrate, they can kind of just through the action of friction, thin those pads out. So when you and I talked earlier, you put me onto a product which was super interesting to me and is still very interesting. And I was able to talk to the, the owner of the company and he was incredibly helpful and hooked me up with some of it. And I've been testing it. I still have some more work to do, but when those pads thin, you run the risk of tears and bruising, and they're really susceptible to trauma. Hoof armor, have you had a chance to use it? I know that you're worried about it expanding enough because a horse's foot doesn't expand as much as an elephant's. Yeah, so exotic animal veterinary practice is very specialized. And with the hoof armor, exotic animal vets are very nervous about putting anything new on an animal if they don't know exactly what's in it. So I've run into some problems just using it and getting permission because our vets are our, our, they're our partners and I value the relationships with our vets, you know, in all these cases because I don't know enough and I need their expertise and I don't want to, you know, upset anyone by using something without permission and then they find out it's been on and and that damages that relationship 
So what I've been doing is kind of playing with what he gave me and, you know, using it all my own hand or just sort of experimenting with the applicator. And I'm trying to find a facility that is like, yep, bring it on, let's put it on. And I think I've got two and I was just about to use it, but COVID hit yeah. and I can't get back to those facilities just yet. So I really fascinated by that product and I think that it has some significant applications for the the elephant care industry and what I like about it is that it's Kevlar infused and it is super thin and when I talked to him I was just fascinated because I said you know hey how long does this stuff take to apply and he's like well it takes a little while you know you put it on and you got to wait you know about five minutes and but you can put some talcum powder on it but put down right away and I'm like are you kidding me that like that's super fast (laughs) you know and then I said well how long does it last because elephants are just horribly hard on anything you put on their foot he goes well it'll last for about you know somewhere around 75 100 miles and I was like oh my god this stuff lasts that long are you kidding me and he said yeah and if you go over really rocky terrain I'd, I'd probably put another coat on but it'll probably still be there so I was just I mean I was geeking out you know and i'm like this is amazing i've got to get this stuff on a foot but i haven't again i haven't really in full practice been able to apply it to the situations that i need it for yeah um so um i'm looking forward to it and finding a good product which the horse industry is fantastic for is super helpful for trying to shore up and give those pads a little bit of extra insurance the problem with with elephants and i would imagine the same thing can be said of horses is if you put a, a product under one foot that protects that foot, you know, and, and there are boots for elephants, you know, not, they're not at all like horse shoes, but there are boots that you can put them in. You are then suddenly putting a single sneaker on a four-legged animal, you know, it's, it's like taking a person and saying, here, wear one sneaker all day and, mm-hmm. and let's see how your hips feel at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you've got to be really careful about what you do with one without considering what it what it does to the rest. So fixing those thin pads is very challenging and helping these old elephants that have them be more resilient and be able to just walk around comfortably is a huge challenge. There are tons of other pathologies that elephant feet can present. Again, I think probably the one that would be most interesting for your audience would be the laminitis type issues. So this is a topic that I am, it's kind of my holy grail. I'm always chasing it. I don't think I'll ever get close to it. But you see things in elephant feet, and they're, they're very, almost very specifically nail-related, where nails will separate at the cuticle. You can get nails that split across the face of the nail. And with both of those kinds of things, you'll see behind the nail this granulation tissue. You know, and proliferative granulation tissue is, is of course, part of the healing process for wounds and a natural part of it. But in elephants, it's really, it seems very easy for elephant tissue to go from just that proliferative healing phase to a really sort of out of control phase where you've just got this really aggressive granulation tissue developing and it becomes that exuberant granulation tissue. And what happens when you get that tissue is it, I always tell people it's like popcorn behind the nail, you know, it's just, it's exploding behind the nail and those pressures, the nail can't remain connected anymore, you know, and you get failure at the lamina and the nail sheds or cracks right up the middle. 
And then that granulation tissue starts putting pressure on everything. And it, it becomes a pretty horrific condition for these animals and does seem to be pretty sensitive. And, you know, we, we don't have a good way to deal with it. And there have been a lot of different schools of thought, you know, sometimes cryotherapy works really well to control the, the granulation tissue. Sometimes cold soaking helps to quiet it down. But the, the whole goal of it for me is to go about it a little bit differently than attacking the granulation tissue. I always look, look at it and say, all right, well, where, what's the cause? What's the source? You know, why are we getting this granulation tissue? And, you know, I, I've been fascinated listening to many of your guests talk about, I, I think you guys have all sort of categorized at least three primary causes for laminitis, you know, and you talk about PPID related laminitis. We have some suspicions about that in elephants, but we haven't really hit on it yet. Yeah. Um, you talk about like a, a systemic sepsis condition, which can lead to laminitis in horses. And I do believe that occurs in elephants. I, I see, you know, I, I get calls from people, not just about feet. I do everything with elephants and, and animals in general, but I get calls about sick animals that are septic or have bad colics. And we talk about treating that. And then I'm always sort of reminding them, like, hey, how do your feet look right now? You know, and how is she standing? Because if they're colicky, man, they just, they change how they stand because that abdomen is so uncomfortable. And they don't want to move, you know? Yeah. Um, so the pressures then are put on those feet. So I, I tell them, I'm like, look, I know you've got, a, you've got a GI issue going on. Do me a favor and trim the hell out of your feet real quick. Take the nails up. Give her some breaks on those feet, you know, like take some of that load off. So we suspect that there are those same causes for laminitis in elephants. But the one that I feel I, I understand to a degree and can see and can logically sort of connect the dots on is that supporting limb laminitis, that, that concept anyway. Right. Um, you know, so I'll see confirmation in these elephants. And you can see that, you know, the, the nails that typically fail and have this issue with the laminitis or the proliferative granulation tissue are the ones that should not be the, the toes that naturally would get some, some degree of pressure in a naturally standing elephant. So you see your lateral toes fail quite a bit in these elephants. Um, D2 on the front right. You'll also see D4 on the front left and then D2 on both of the, the rear hind feet. Those are the ones you can almost always predict. But what you see is you see the pressures on the nails, you see the cuticle changes, you see the, the color changes in the, the sole of the, the toe, and then you'll see the event lines in the nails. So all of these things tell you you've got some inflammation. You know, so what I try to fight and deal with is calming down the inflammation before you get to that laminitic phase, you know, before the laminae really start to distort and, and develop defects and just fail, ideally before you get to that exuberant granulation phase. Because once you've got that stuff, you're all, it's almost an end-stage issue, you know, and you're, I've seen people have those things happen, and when they're out of control in the animal, you know, the topic of humane euthanasia comes up, you know, and, and that's a terrible outcome for everybody involved. And you just, for me, it's all about prevention and figuring out how to assess what's causing those conditions. And then when you have them, it's a cooperative effort between the veterinary professionals 
and the husbandry professionals. You know, the, the veterinary professionals are there to diagnose and offer treatments for what we're seeing and what we can reliably speak to and diagnose. The husbandry care professionals, though, are what I always try to, to help and to buffer. Uh, because if you can get the nail to handle the pressure it's getting better, to disperse the force better, more evenly and more naturally, you can help that tissue to rest. And a lot of times your inflammation will quiet down. That then takes away that stimulus for that exuberant granulation tissue to be responding to that inflammation. Then you get kind of a, a leg up and you can start treating your excessive granulation tissue. That's when your cryotherapy helps, you know, because you can freeze that tissue back and remove it safely and painlessly. You can let that nail start to rebuild, let all that tissue start to develop at the germinal layers or level much better. Cuticles start to quiet down and you, you can see that animal feel better. Man, when you first see that first little ring of nail that looks healthy and starts to emerge from behind that cuticle, it's just such a relief because you're like, wow, suddenly this tissue can do its job, you know, and, and we might get a nail back here. And you see the animals respond really well too. But it's never quite that simple because, you know, that all sounded really simple. Because when you're having that issue, you know, in a front right foot, you've got to go to that back left and, and see what effect is happening from the animal pushing that weight and that force and that support away from that front right. And I've gone to at least more than a handful of places and they're, they're like, oh, look at this toe. It's, it's coming apart. Help us figure out what to do. And we'll fix it, you know, and a lot of times people panic. There's there's a lot more you can do than they think. But then I'm always like, hey, let's get her back right foot up and take a look because she's got some sensitivity back there, right? You know, and, and they're like, oh, no, that foot's fine. You know, and, and then we get her foot up and we start rasping and she's twitching, you know, and, and you look at the nails and the changes in the pads and everybody's like, oh, my God, she's she's got something going on in this back foot, too. Wow, I, I had no idea. And to me, that's like, that's what it's all about, right? Like helping people see these things that these animals who cannot tell us what they feel, you know, are, are experiencing. So it's, it's a really interesting thing. And it is, like I said, it's a holistic approach and there are many, many pathologies. Like I said earlier, when I first started, I was always worried about the nail wall cracks. And nowadays I'm like, oh man, cracks, that's, that's small potatoes. We can take care of those. That's no big deal. So yeah, there, there's a lot to it. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like too, like that approach has a lot more parallels for, I keep wanting to say laminitis, but it's not, what do you actually call it in elephants? Um, you know what? We, we are not as evolved yet to have <laughs> really cool terms. Um, there are historical terms. Everybody has always called it a blowout. Oh, that's, okay. That's the term. I've got a nail blowout and I cringe when I hear that because it's such the, the non-descriptive broad term and it can it can be so many different things but yeah i i try to talk to it in terms of laminitic tissue and i actually liked what dr taylor said in your podcast where she she was talking about the stages of it and how at certain stages where you're losing hoof integrity and you're getting this this kind of reaction in there she called it more of a laminopathy at that point than a laminitis yeah um and i do think you know that I need to do some more reading and understand that term better, honestly. But I, I am going to look that one up and see if that isn't more applicable to what we see in some stages of these things with elephants. 
Yeah. And, and when you were talking about it with their nails and how you're trying to get that tissue to calm down by, you know, approaching it with a trim and relieving pressure, like that's, I mean, it might not be a common approach across the entire farrier world, but when I come to a horse that has laminitis, my first thought is I want to get as much weight bearing off this lamina as possible so that they're not constantly putting stress on an inflamed structure, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to relieve those forces on the hoof wall and get them in something that's going to allow them to share that weight bearing load to get that inflammation to calm down. But as much as, you know, you were saying that it's not always straightforward and it's not always, you know, an easy one and done thing. It's the same with horses. Like, you know, I think I have way more questions than answers when it comes to SIRS related laminitis or supporting limb laminitis, where sometimes we're just like, I just hope this works and I just hope this helps, you know? Um, yeah. But it's definitely really hard. I'm, I'm an optimist, you know, I think everything can be fixed and I know I'm wrong, but I, that's how I look at everything. So for me, I look at these foot issues or anything in a foot or, or any kind of illness as like a, a you know a row of dominoes that someone has tipped the first domino and now all of them are falling in sequence you know and i think if you can interrupt that sequence before it gets to the end of the dominoes i think that you have a good chance of either stopping it there reversing it completely you know or for me i tell people one percent improvement you know t turning that around just one percent makes a huge difference for these animals you know and if if those dominoes are falling at you know 60 miles an hour and you slow it down to 55 that's that's a win for me you know and and i keep trying to find ways to reverse it but if we can offset some of these things that's fantastic and that's a that gets us a little further down the road and i always go back to dolly you know i wish and i, I can't even tell you all the things i tried to deal with that pad lesion and i I tried everything anybody had thought of, and I tried crazy things nobody had thought of. And if I had an extra 6% reversal in that condition to buy me just a little bit more time, maybe I would have been able to, to fix it. You know, and, and I want to be able to help everybody find those things for their animals because, I mean, anybody who gets connected to, to these wonderful charismatic animals, it's, it's such a, a loss in your life you know, when, when they're no longer in it. You know, you just have this hole that you can't fill and you always think, what could I have done differently or what could I have done better for her or for him? Um, and I know it's the same way with, with horses. It's, I mean, geez, there are people who have spiders for pets that feel the same way, I'm sure. It's yeah. it's all about this connection to this living thing that you're responsible for. And, and again, if I can find that 1% difference to help them feel just a little bit better and, and hold on a little longer, maybe we can figure this out. You know, when, when you put it up on your Facebook, you know, what kind of topics and, and you said, you called me out and we're like, maybe we could talk about exotics and zoos. I really do think the benefit is sort of giving people perspective on a topic that, that you know, is outside of their realm of expertise in a way, you know, if, and sort of thinking about things differently based on different application of force to the fee, different anatomical structures. And, you know, I can enter the horse realm and, and listen to everybody and I've got no skin in that game. You know, I, I listen to everybody objectively and I, I have this, because I'm coming at it from a different standpoint, I have this wonderful ability, I think, to just sort of hear everyone and weigh it and go, yeah, I, that makes sense to me. Or 
no, that piece doesn't. I, I'm not going to explore that any further, but I'm going to maybe think about it a little bit more. And I think elephants can do that for the horse industry, you know, and if we could get those those two specialties and disciplines together, I think we could really open each other's eyes because, again, man, your podcast gives me so many things to think about and things that I just never would have stumbled on. Yeah, I completely agree. And I really hope this conversation sparks people to begin thinking a little outside the box. All right. Well, again, thank you. And um, I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too, Alicia. Thanks so much. This was fun. Yeah, I think so too. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.